on today's show, Drew Barnes, MLA for Cypress Medicine Hat, says an avalanche of changes coming soon to Alberta politics. Of course, you've heard the story of the U.S. Supreme Court and possibly draft proposal to overturn Roe v. Wade and an interesting position from Howard Anglin. We need better, but not smaller, House of Commons. If you read the newspaper, you may have noticed a piece that came out last week by Drew Barnes, who is, of course, a UCP MLA, um, talking about, hey, we're, we're headed for some upheaval in this province, some changes on the way, regardless of what happens with this leadership review and, you know, how does the, the future of the party look? How does the future of conservatism in Alberta look? And can we ever get unity? So we're going to chat with Drew about some of the points he made in that piece and get a little further analysis. Um, Drew, thanks so much for joining us today. I appreciate your time. Good morning, Jay. So in your piece... You know, you go through all of the premiers that you've seen during your time in office. And, I mean, you've been in office 10 years, which is, is a long time, but you've seen a lot of premiers for 10 years yeah. in politics. We've, we've seen a lot of turnover, haven't we? Oh, we sure have. Five different premiers in just 10 years. You know, that includes the, the interim period that Dave Hancock had. Yeah. But it, start, it started with Alison Redford, who, who at the start, you know, looked like it, it. She was on the right track, but clearly she lacked judgment and experience. Um, you know, then replaced by Jim Jim Prentice, which it, it's impossible to forget the most outrageous and anti anti democratic maneuver in, in Alberta history with the floor crossings and trying to merge the two parties without Albertans and members uh, say. And then uh, four years of Rachel Notley, and and now we're here on on three years of, of Premier Kenny that is, that is so off off track and and so divided right now. Um, it, uh, it's, it and again I'm 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 glad that in my three terms I've seen three different governments elected, and I I'm pleased that Albertans are more engaged than ever in their politics. You know uh, I'm very very grateful to represent Cypress Medicine had for ten years, and and there's so many good ideas presented to me, so many ways to change. And, and, and make things better and, and, and family involvement and more economic freedom and individual opportunity. And, uh, hey, I think we're headed, to, headed for change again in the next year. Um, in your piece, as you go through the list of premiers, um, I noticed that you have good things to say about almost all of them, even Rachel Notley. You, had some, <laughs> you, you were a little complimentary towards some of the things that she did. The only two who get ripped are Jim Prentice and Jason Kenney. And the reason they both get ripped is because, to me, the, the impression I get is they moved away from what we could call Wild Rose conservatives in Alberta, the party that you were a part of. Um, and that seems to be the main sticking point for you. Is that fair? I, I, not really. I, I think it's that the, they were, became elitist. They didn't meet expectations. Uh, when Jim Prentice showed up, everyone thought he was going to be the conservative savior. Uh, again, the most outrageous and anti-democratic maneuver, trying to do the floor crossings. And, and, and think of the, the the initial budget. He was going to raise taxes almost as much as Rachel Notley ended up raising taxes. Uh, he was eliminating our charitable tax credit. You know, a real hallmark of conservatives and families is, is to take care of each other. And, and Jason Kenney's worse. Uh, he... He campaigned as a grassroots servant leader who who fails to listen to his members, uh, an elitist streak a mile wide, um, you know, and the strong arm tactics. You know, I was expelled from the UCP caucus almost a year ago now, and uh, you know, I spent I spent 
two years in the caucus trying to have my voice tr- heard, trying to speak on behalf of the 50,000 people and the families of Cypress Medicine Hat. And, and when a, a leader made the commitment to listen and be a servant leadership and then and refused to engage and, and listen, uh, and, you know, there was many times I disagreed uh, with his policy and the policy of the government in caucus wasn't getting me anywhere. So uh, here I am. And uh, again, I'm hearing it from Albertans. Albertans are, are 100% believing that, that this premier has run his course. The elitism and the strong arm tactics are not to be accepted. And between now and next May 29th, the next election, I think Albertans are going to demand change again. Now, we don't know what's going to happen with this leadership review. We're two weeks and a day out here before we get the results. Uh, it, we don't even know exactly what the threshold for Kenny to remain is. I guess it looks like 50% plus one. Um, my question to you is, the Premier has said, going forward, after this review is finished, if he is leader and you can't get along with his team anymore, it's time to find another team. Um, how do you take... What, first of all, what kind of threshold do you think the Premier needs to remain leader? And second of all, do you anticipate that things are going to be much different following May 18th in terms of toe the line or get out? Uh, yeah, first of all, the, the leadership... Albertans have lost trust in, in Jason Kenney. Albertans have given up on Jason Kenney. Shay, he was clearly going to lose in Red Deer when... It was supposed to be the in-person ballot and, and mark your ballot. Uh, many, many people around the province got engaged and were spending the $110 to, to go vote about. And those that couldn't respectfully didn't buy a membership. Then when the rules were changed, all those people were excluded for, from their opportunity to be involved in their system and their province. So so he was done in Red Deer. Uh, you, you couple that with Bill 81 that he put in a short time ago where you can now buy memberships for, for people without their knowledge. You couple that with the ongoing RCUP investigation from the leadership five years ago. Albertans have totally lost trust. And and the second part of your question is, is after May 18th, when when he somehow survives, yeah, it's more of my way or, or, or no way, uh, my way or, or you're not included. And, and Shay, there's 4.4 million Albertans. There's 87 of us honoured to be paid to speak on their behalf. And, and he's, he's, again, abandoning that grassroots servant leadership. And, uh, you know, that's why, why his time as Premier is done. And that's why Albertans are going to demand change again May 29th. You talk in your piece about whether or not we can have unity uh, in inside of the party. Um, the question I have is, could could there be unity? And like I say, reading your piece, and you, you say there's other reasons, but you know, you, you go after Prentice viciously because you call it the most undemocratic move in the history of our province. Well, he took down the Wild Rose. You go after Jason Kenney. He moved away from the Wild Rose. If it's not um, conservatism as Drew Barnes sees conservatism, What's your willingness to compromise for unity? It seems to me like it's got to be your way or you're going to not push for unity. You're going to be the guy on the outside taking shots at the leader. It's happened at least twice now. Yeah, yeah, fair fair question, Shay. Um, But but it's more than that. Um, I'll give you three examples. Uh, UCP members have an express policy to return to the 10% uh, flat income tax. Here we are in Alberta, oil and gas royalties two years ago, $3 billion. Last year, $13 billion. This year, 15, 17, we're not sure what the final number is going to be. And this is not even being talked about. Never mind the fact that uh, about $160 million that comes in from the 2% small provincial business tax, uh, Manitoba and Saskatchewan have reduced theirs to zero. 
important issues to to all Albertans not being discussed. Uh, another example, uh, when the big box stores, when the, when the COVID and mandates uh, first hit and the big box stores were allowed to stay open, deemed as essential, many of us in caucus argued that the uh, requirement should be safe versus non-safe, not essential versus non-essential. That went over a year where it wasn't listened to. Premier Kenny finally came out with an apology, but but after thousands of small businesses had lost hundreds of thousands of dollars. Shay, I'll give you another example. I spoke up against the age change 16, 18 months ago when the when the government moved age payment in one month to the eighth of the next month, trying to get it into the next year. I spoke up against that. So it's not only Wild Rose versus what might have been considered more progressive conservative. It's clearly a desire to listen to Albertans, to focus on economic economic freedom, and to focus on Alberta families. So you are open and available to have more of a unified party and have some compromise in whatever that party might look like going forward. Absolutely. Uh, you know, Premier Klein, God bless some of the things that I hear about how he did. He used to have a system of every new law had to be passed by two-thirds uh, of caucus. Um, that is not a, a, an issue at all in this in this current government. Uh, so, so let's get back to a system where all 4.4 million Albertans can have their voices heard through their 87 representatives. And, you know, let's get back to, to servant and grassroots leadership as was promised and not delivered. Drew, thank you so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate you joining us. Thank you, Shay. Have a good one. You too. That is Drew Barnes, MLA for Cypress Medicine Hat. Now, in the United States, as you know, there is a massive, massive outcry over a leaked draft opinion from the United States Supreme Court that says um, there is enough votes on the court um, to uphold a Mississippi law that would ban abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy, overturning the 1973 Roe v. Wade ruling that legalized um, abortion nationwide in the United States. Now, it's let's set aside the fact that there is a body in the United States called the Supreme Court that is there with the sole purpose of determining the constitutionality of laws in that country, um, because that's not what the Supreme Court has become. The Supreme Court has become a completely and utterly politicized body that will decide whether laws go ahead or do not go ahead based completely on partisan politics, nothing else, right? We talk about who gets nominated, who gets confirmed, and we know how they're going to rule on cases before the facts are even presented. We know based on their political leanings um, how this is going to shape up. It's, it's mind-blowing to me. It's absolutely crazy uh, the way that this, this body operates and how essentially... It's uh, it's an arm of whatever government is in power in terms of stacking the court and making sure that their laws are supported on a political basis. It, it's crazy. It really and truly is. But here we are. Um, and that's where we are in terms of this Roe v. Wade decision. Now, it's not a decision. This is a draft opinion. So let's get the lay of the land. Let's get the facts around this, and then we can talk about it. We're going to be joined now by um, Matt Lebo. Matt is a department chair and a professor in political science at Western University. Matt, thanks so much for joining us today. I appreciate your time. Sure. This all, of course, goes back to, as I said, Roe v. Wade back in the 1970s, almost 50 years ago to the year. Um, Let's just define what was that case that started all of this and legalized abortion in the U.S.? So that was a case that established that states 
um, could not pass laws and enforce laws that restricted a woman's access uh, or right to abortion. And since then, there have been um, other laws and other cases that have, you know, put some further definitions around that about what um, what access is available during, you know, first trimester, second trimester, right. third trimester. and But essentially, it, it said that states could not uh, restrict abortion. Now, this document that came to light through some reporting by Politico in the United States over the weekend, it's not a Supreme Court decision, right? What exactly is this document? So it looks like this is a working draft of the decision um, written by Justice Alito. And it, it, I mean, we imagine that he would not have written this if he wasn't writing the opinion of the court. It's written as though he has been assigned the opinion and that the opinion means at least five justices are for overturning uh, Roe v. Wade. Um, so it, it it's still something that, that perhaps would be circulated amongst the justices in the majority that would be worked on and the language and all that. But the one thing that's really clear is that uh, the opinion is there to overturn Roe v. Wade. The votes are there and that that, um, that decision is being overturned. Right. Next question. Why uh, is this before the Supreme Court? As you say, Roe v. Wade back in the 1970s. Why is the Supreme Court having this in front of them right now? Uh, you know, throughout American history, the um, laws are interpreted and legal uh, precedents can be overturned. And sometimes that's positive. Uh, sometimes it's negative, And, you know, that's that's your point of view. So Brown versus Board of Education, which desegregated public schools and public entities in the United States, overturned a previous Supreme Court decision uh, from uh, the 1890s. So no case is, is forever settled or no, no law is forever settled. There's a, a new law in Mississippi. There's many more new laws. It gives the Supreme Court the opportunity to review this key case. They're deciding to overturn it. And very much that, I mean, the, the justices, the five most conservative justices in the Supreme Court, this is their, you know, number one target of why they were put on the Supreme Court in the first place. Right. Exactly. I mean, which is another issue altogether. Um, now, the document that we saw, it doesn't ban abortion in the United States. There is a distinction there, right? What it does is returns control to the states. Is that correct? That's right. So we would see, I guess, would it be a patchwork potentially where some states would decide they, they, they do want to ban abortion and others would say we don't? Is that ultimately what could happen here? Uh, it's going to be extremely complicated. I think the moment that Roe v. Wade is overturned, abortion will become illegal in something like 17 states where they have already passed laws. Access to abortion will be drastically reduced in those states. But there's beyond that, there's, there's also laws that have enforcement about women within their states seeking abortions in other states. So it's not just that, you know, a woman in, in a state where abortion is, there's no access to it or it's illegal, that, that she would leave to go to a different state. It's that there might be penalties for her leaving and going to a different state and or coming to Canada for, um, for access to abortion. So it's, um, 
it's going to be extremely uh, complicated. Yeah, and and unpleasant. It's gonna it's gonna be an absolute battle, no question about it. There's a there's a lot of people out there saying, and this is just the start. You mentioned precedents when you make changes like this in terms of constitutionality and what the states control, and you know people say, well, gay marriage is next on the agenda. That's also why they were put on the Supreme Court. Could this be the start of these kinds of changes based on what we're seeing around Roe v. Wade? Absolutely. And so, again, what was leaked is that is written by one justice, and we don't know whether to what extent the other justices agree with, with what's written in that opinion. But the way that that opinion is written by Alito, he talks about uh, rights that are not specifically in the Constitution, and that includes the right to privacy. And so if, if this is, turns out to be five justices on the Supreme Court saying that the, the Constitution does not include a right to privacy, then that leads you down all sorts of other roads, um, contraception, same-sex marriage, um, uh, interracial marriage, yeah. um, uh, sodomy laws, all sorts of things that, you know, the last 50 years, um, civil rights have, have gradually improved in the United States. All, many, many of those could be rolled back. And the timeline on this, and like we say, this is not an official ruling from the court. It's uh, it's a document that indicates where they would vote, um, but they that might come to a vote before the session ends by midsummer, right? So it probably has been voted on already. Yeah, but it would be announced in June, and in then June. the moment that it's announced, then state laws that restrict women's right to uh, abortion would go into effect that day. Yeah, a bunch of trigger laws, as they're called. Matt, thank you so much for walking us through that. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. That is Matt Lebo. Matt is a department chair, professor of political science at Western University, just giving us the actual facts of how this works. Um, It's... I I don't know. I've talked about U.S. politics before, and I think we really need to draw the line between U.S. and Canada, and I'll talk about that in just a minute. But I I take a look at what's going on in the United States, and it just seems to me like it's it's hurtling backwards at at a really rapid pace. And I know there's some of you in the audience that are happy to see that, that want things to go um, in, back into a more conservative area, you know, and, and you're, you're entitled to your viewpoint, but you need to talk about the overwhelming vast majority of Americans and Canadians are not on board with this. This is, this is a minority dictating the law to the vast majority in the United States. Now, what does that mean in Canada? That's another discussion altogether because you've seen a number of Canadian politicians getting into the fray on this, right? Why? Is it an issue in Canada? Is it something that we need to be fighting about in this country, or is it just another one of those wedge issues? This is going to be a fun discussion, I think. We talk a lot about politicians in this country, and I know a lot of you don't have a very high regard (laughs) for the politicians. How would you feel about having more, like twice as many, at the federal level? Would that make things better or worse? I'm, I know what you're yelling at the radio right now, but let's hear this out. It's a very interesting idea. It comes from Howard Anglin, a postgraduate researcher at Oxford, uh, previously Deputy Chief of Staff to Prime Minister Stephen Harper, Principal Secretary to the Premier of Alberta, Jason Kenney, a lawyer. I mean, he's been involved in conservative politics for a very long time. Um, Howard, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate your time today. Thank you very much for having me, Shay. Uh, I got to admit, I think, you know, most of us would assume that smaller government is sort of the bedrock of uh, conservative movements everywhere. This seems to fly in the face of that. In a way, uh, you're advocating for 
not only more MPs, but double the number of MPs in the House of Commons. Yes, well, it's, it was a slightly tongue-in-cheek thought <laughs> experiment of, 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 of an article. It was really it was responding to an earlier article, uh, which was also very thoughtful and very good, which said, look, we, we need a small House of Commons. Uh, House of Commons federal politics is mostly just a waste of time and money. Let's, let's just cut the number. 338 MPs is too many. I don't recall that they specified a, a number. I think they said something like cut 40, go back to what it was, say, 20 years ago. Uh, would we be worse governed? And I, I don't think we would be worse governed with 300 versus 338. But it got me thinking, and it's an idea I've had for a while, because I'm living here in the UK where Parliament is 650. Yeah. I started thinking, well, just adjusting it by 10% probably doesn't affect the way we're governed. But there are certain benefits I've noticed of the UK system with a much bigger House of Commons. Um, and so maybe if we doubled... I would speak doubled as an arbitrary number because it gets as close to where the UK is. Um, and it's also easy to just split every riding in half. You don't have to worry about apportioning between provinces and getting into that whole constitutional quagmire. Um, so, well, there's certain benefits to actually having a lot more MPs and uh, go into what uh, sort of three main benefits uh, in the piece. I'm happy to discuss them. Yeah, and one of the points that you make, I think, is a great point. Basically, you increase the talent pool that we can draw from to put people yeah. in ministries, right? I mean, above all else, we have more choice uh, in terms of who we want making decisions. Yeah, so when a prime minister uh, comes to make their cabinet, they have to choose from the MPs that voters have have provided them. And so if you look at uh, Justin Trudeau, when, when they had a majority or when Harper had a majority, it's about a, it was about 160 odd uh, when Harper had a majority. I think when Trudeau had it, it was about 170 something. Um, that's not a lot to choose from. But if you double that number and get closer to what, say, Boris Johnson in the UK had to choose from here, where I think they have about 360 something MPs, you just have a much deeper talent pool. And when in Canada, when you're making a cabinet, you have to consider all sorts of um, box checking, um, representational yes, considerations. Sure. So, uh, and the biggest of that is regional. I mean, if you want a balance of uh, of gender, you want a, a, a racial balance that reflects Canada generally. Um, but the the real tough one is often regional. So, if you're yeah. only elected with one MP in the Maritimes, guess who's in cabinet? You get <laughs> Trudeau gets one MP one MP in Alberta. Guess who's in cabinet? Um, I think when Harper won a majority, he had six MPs from Quebec. Five of them ended up in cabinet, and the odd one out ended up as chair of the Quebec caucus. Um, so if you double the number of MPs, it means you'd have, I think I put in my piece, hopefully a little less tokenism, uh, regional tokenism, and a, and a little more uh, merit in appointments. Okay, and I agree with you completely. I mean, the more talent we have to choose from, the better that's going to be. But if we increase the, the amount of talent, that also means we increase the amount of uh, dead weight, untalented backbenchers, people. I mean, I call it whatever you want. I don't want to be unnecessarily cruel to these people. Um, but we also have more of them. I mean, what what's the upside to that? Yeah, well, I think so. there's a real upside to that. Um, one of the recurring criticism to hear of the Canadian parliamentary system is that the Prime Minister's office and uh, the government in general has far too much control over the caucus and the backbench, far more than you get in, in any other um, Westminster system. I mean, I can't recall the last time a federal NDP 
MP voted against the party line and wasn't kicked out yeah, of the party yeah. uh, on anything. I mean, even on trivial matters, uh, or things that might interest their region. Um, the Liberals are probably the second most disciplined, and then the Conservatives have uh, just have a stronger tradition of having things like free votes and conscience votes um, on more issues. So you get a little more um, you, get, you get a little more uh, breaking from the party line in the Conservative Party, but still nothing like you get in the uh, in the UK, and certainly not like you get in the United States. Um, but having a lot more MPs, having a much larger backbench, gives that backbench a certain amount of power. Um, and in the UK, they have something in the Conservative Party called the 1922 Club, and it's a separate sort of caucus of just the backbench. And they protect their independence as a backbench pretty fiercely. And because they have the numbers, they have, they have a lot more power than they have here. And that includes a lot of people who realize they'll never be in cabinet. Because governments in Canada, if you take, say, I don't know, say 160 MPs, 170 MPs in the majority, about a third of them, actually maybe a little more, uh, are either in cabinet or parliament secretaries, sort of um, associate cabinet understudies. Um, another, and virtually everybody else there, uh, thinks that they're going to be in the next cabinet shuffle. So yeah. everybody is, has incentive to behave well, do what the leader says, do what the uh, prime minister says, uh, toe the party line, because that's your ticket to cabinet. In the UK, if you've got 360 MPs, a good 180 of them have a pretty good uh, chance of never being in cabinet, and they know it. And that frees them up to actually um, represent their constituents or their own or their conscience or their own views a lot more freely. And they don't really have to worry about being whipped because they can't be bought by the, um, uh, the prospect of a cabinet position being dangled in front of them. Interesting, yeah. I mean, and I guess that speaks to your third point, was you know the the, the house is, is is essentially there for the purpose of oversight. More eyes means more yeah. oversight, and more independence provides more oversight, right? Yeah. It it also because you have more people who won't be in cabinet, they find other ways to be productive in parliament. And so, for example, the committee system. So every bill that goes through Parliament, uh, gets studied by a, cap- by a parliamentary committee. And in the case system, that's um, often a pretty superficial process. Um, not always. And there are some good backbench MPs that take that seriously. Yeah. But mo- more often than not, it the votes break down along party lines, um, and the scrutiny is, if not directly controlled, then sort of indirectly controlled by, by the government um, or by the leaders' offices and the opposition parties. In the UK, you have... Um, a lot more people that see themselves in as a career backbencher and their their value add to the parliamentary system is being a honest or providing honest scrutiny of bills and real feedback and um, they they can have uh, more in depth analysis um, because they have bigger committees um, and again having more talent to choose the cabinet you also have more talent than they go to the committees you have a lot of people mm-hmm. who are, have a lot more experience. Um, of life, um, more lawyers, more accountants, more people's um, specialties and special experience and expertise uh, that they can then bring to the scrutiny of legislation and, and to the budget and of government behavior. Uh, so you, you have more, I think I, the way I put it is, uh, if you have a bigger House of Commons, you have fewer sheep and more watchdogs. Yeah. Hey, as you know, Howard, I'm getting a ton of texts from our listeners. Oh, sure. Just more money. We're throwing more money at government. Why are we going to spend so much money? If we were to double the amount of MPs, how, we're talking about a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of the overall budget, right? 
Oh, it would be about something like one. Okay. The, the proposal uh, that I was responding to talked about cutting 40 MPs to save money. Yeah. And I calculated that would be, that savings would be one, one seventeen thousand seven hundred fiftieth of the budget. <laughs> Uh, so divide the budget into 17,750 parts and be one of those parts. Um, so adding more would be probably one ten thousandth of the budget. Uh, but I, I note at the end, one thing that, again, it's counterintuitive, um, but I think a lot of people that have worked in politics um, share this view. The, the Having more members of parliament or more cabinet ministers in cabinet doesn't necessarily mean a bigger government overall. Right. That just means a bigger cabinet or a bigger caucus. Yeah. What actually provides is more oversight of how money is spent. So from a this is from a partisan political point of view, I liked having more conservative cabinet ministers because that meant more conservative political staff who yeah. were ensuring that the the hundreds of billions of dollars being spent by the government was being spent in a way that was consistent with our party platform and our party values and the Canadians elected the party uh, to carry out. Um, fewer people uh, means that the bureaucracy has a lot more uh, power. And as a, as a conservative, the bureaucracy isn't always aligned with our interests. And I liked having more oversight of that. I liked knowing where grants were going. I, know, I liked uh, knowing um, what organizations we were, we were giving money to. I, I, I like knowing that. And you need more yeah. people to have that oversight because it's just such an enormous um machine otherwise and it grinds along at its own pace and follows its own will unless you have people overseeing it so having more mps actually means a better chance to call in christian freeland as when the budget's there and really grill her on every line of the budget right yeah and i, I think that serves Canadian interest and i think you can actually end up with smaller or at least better and more responsive government if you have more people who are looking over the shoulder of the government. It's a very, very uh, interesting premise. Howard, I can't thank you enough for joining us today. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. I encourage people to read it. It's, it's nothing else. It's a thought exercise. It is, yeah. People to think about how, how our system works and how it might be made better. Yeah, absolutely. And it is food for thought. Thanks so much, Howard. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Shay. That is Howard Anglin, postgraduate researcher currently at Oxford University. As I say, though, Deputy Chief of Staff to Prime Minister Stephen Harper, Principal Secretary to Premier Jason Kenney, a lawyer. He's been around politics a long time. And, 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 I, and I see the knee-jerk reaction, and I had the exact same thing. When I, when I read the headline yesterday and I started reading the piece to get ready for the interview, I was like, really? More MPs? Come on, that's the last thing we need. But you know what? He has some pretty salient points in there that sort of make you think, oh, okay, maybe he's, uh, maybe he's making a point. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.